Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Jane Mayenshine about her new book, Embryos Under the Microscope, The Diverging Meanings of Life. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2014. Now, at the same time, this is a book that's really fascinating, it's really exceptionally well-written, and it's also really important. The fascinating thing about this story is the way that, or among many other things, the way that Mayenshine is able to get into and pull out some of the really fascinating conceptual and historical threads that come out of the history of the study of embryology and developmental biology. So from the perspective of the histories of visuality and observation, the history of argumentation, the history of experimental sciences, this is on its own a really interesting story. It's also really exceptionally well written. And so it's a book that's meant for and that's very, um, I think, readily accessible as an object and as a narrative by not just specialists in the history of science, but also a very wide readership. So it's written in a very clear way. The prose is very beautiful. It's very careful. And the book is also structured in a way that's very thoughtful. It's very clear as you work through the story why you are getting the historical elements that you're getting in terms of the larger argument and the larger structure of the piece. And that's really hard to do. And it's done really, really well here. It's also really important. One of the really important kinds of work that this book does, and this is really a model um, for those of us who are historians and philosophers of science, is to provide a kind of historical account that is useful for and that grounds really, really important decisions made by not just policymakers um, and people in government positions or other sorts of positions, journalists, but also everyday people who are making decisions about what to do with their bodies and how to engage in debates about life, about embryos, about some of the most important and hotly debated issues in the sciences today as they pertain on and impinge on public policy and public debate. So it's an extraordinarily important book um, for those purposes as well. It was a real pleasure to talk with Jane about this. She's really thoughtful about all aspects of the kinds of work that this book does. And I I hope that you enjoy the conversation. I also hope, and I hope very sincerely, that you have a chance to read the book and to look through it and perhaps to also um, think about assigning it in courses. This is a very, very assignable book as much as it is very readable and very thoughtful. What I've done on the write-up to the blog post on the website that you may have linked to this from is also include a link to another related project that Jane and her colleagues and her students are part of, and that's the Embryo Project Encyclopedia. So for listeners and for readers who are interested in understanding this work um, in the larger context of public engagement and a wider engagement with the history of science, I urge you to also check that out because it's part of a really interesting set of projects that this book is part of. Okay, well, I'll leave you to it then. Enjoy and thanks for listening.
We're here today to talk with Jane Mayenshine about her new book, Embryos Under the Microscope, The Diverging Meanings of Life. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Jane. I, I loved the book. I think it's a wonderful and really important work. I had a great time reading it, and I'm really grateful that you've made the time to talk with me today. So welcome to the channel, and thank you. Thank you. So could you start us off, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about what brought you to the general area that this is part of? And specifically, how did you come to decide to work on the history of modern biology? I think that it's because I didn't think I was interested in that, and I'm a little stubborn. So <laughs> I, I initially thought I wanted to be an astrophysicist, but somehow when I was an undergraduate at Yale and studying with Larry Holmes, and he told us about history of modern biology, I said, wow, this is cool, and I don't see very many people doing it, so let me try it. And then I went to grad school at Indiana with Fred Churchill, who said, hey, history of embryology is the coolest of all. And and then I was sucked in. And so that really led me down a path that um, that it's one of those things where we all get sucked into something and we all realize that we're going to specialize, 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 but specializing in the history of embryology turns out to be a really big thing. So it's led to a really kind of a life's work and I think I'll never finish. <laughs> <laughs> so the book looks at the history of embryology and developmental biology, and it looks at it in the context of various kinds of interlocking and interwoven histories. So in histories of observation and visuality, history of policy, history of public debate, along with many other kinds of historical threads that are woven together in the body of the book around this topic. Now, how did you decide to write a book-length object about this topic, and what impelled you to, or how did you decide to write it for the particular audience that the book appeals to? Well, the audience matters a lot to me. So I think that as an academic, I was busy doing my academic work for a lot of years and saying, let me learn more and let me read more things and let me go to more archives and let me get my credentials. But then I had this very strange appointment in 1997 and 1998 where Arizona State University asked me to serve as science advisor to my congressman. And that was absolutely an insane experience in that he's a conservative Republican congressman. And when we first talked, I said, I never voted for a Republican before, so would you be okay with me working in your office? And he said, well, are you willing to listen and learn? And I said, yeah, are you? And he said, yeah. So we actually got along great. And I learned an incredible amount from that. And 1997 and 98 in Congress was the years when Dolly was cloned or the announcement was made and stem cell research happened. So it was the most exciting two years in the history of the universe. Well, anyway, in the history of Congress with respect to embryos. And there I was sitting there and people asked me questions and people kept making stupid, stupid, stupid statements. And some people, one congressman from Florida wanted to, he wanted to ban any kind of cloning. And he worded his proposed bill in a way that would have made it illegal with a million dollar fine for any woman who had twins. I had twins. So I thought, wait. People don't understand this stuff. They're really stupid. And then as I talked to them, I said, no, 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 they're not stupid. They just have never had an opportunity to learn about these amazing embryos because it's not covered in biology 
because it's connected with reproduction and we wouldn't want to talk about that in political environments. And so most people just never had the right to, to study embryology. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it and bring those embryos out into the public is kind of where, where I went. And that seemed like it needed a book. That's right. And the beginning of the book really situates this within that larger frame and also uses this as a case study to argue um, for really not just the centrality of the history of embryology specifically, but also for the history and philosophy of science more generally. So this is really, I think, a model for how and why it matters um, for us to study and, and understand something about history and philosophy of science as informed citizens of the U.S., which is what the book focuses on, but also perhaps well, well beyond. That's kind of you to say that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And I, and I think a lot more people need to jump in and help do it, which is one reason that um, Sandy Mitchell and I, working with others, have started something called the Socially Engaged Joint Caucus. So it's the Joint Caucus of Philosophy of Science Association and History of Science Society to be socially engaged with respect to issues that HPS bears on, which is a lot of issues. Anyway, that's another topic, but that's an important one. So join the, join the cause, guys. Learn to talk about your stuff for a larger audience because it matters. Right. And in fact, this is what the first chapter of the book brings us into. So the first chapter kind of lays out this basic background and also lays out some of the major questions and themes of the book. So in addition to giving us a lot of different kinds of background um, that take us through the history of um, ideas of development and embryology, another theme that we're going to come back to, I'm sure, repeatedly over the course of the conversation is a theme that threads throughout the book, and that's the importance of observation and observability of the earliest stages of life. And we're going to see that coming up in different ways and in different forms throughout the text. So um, I mentioned that just for listeners who may not imagine themselves as being fundamentally interested in this particular case study or in issues of policy, but who are interested in histories of observation and visuality. And this is very much a contribution to that field, as well as to the kinds of um, goals um, and themes that we've been talking about already. So the beginning of the book argues among um, the you know among the other arguments that we've already talked about situating this within the broader frame of the importance of the history and philosophy of science for you know basic social understanding and policy making argues that in your in your words getting the biology right should matter for social understanding and for policy decisions. So one of the things that the book is going to do um, throughout the chapters is to give readers a kind of primer on basic elements of understanding the modern biology behind de, um, evolution, well, developmental um, embryology and developmental biology, and also taking us through the moments of time in which we see the emergence and development and really important context behind some of the themes that have then become really crucial for underlying policy decisions and debates about life, about the emergence of life, the nature of life and embryology in contemporary debates. So the entire book is really um, one long developed argument that really informs the kind of um, decision making that I think um, readers will be invited into by the end of the book. So it's really tightly constructed and it's really a beautiful, um, a beautifully constructed object among other things. So the book is going to characterize the history of embryos into seven 
roughly chronological periods that overlap somewhat. So I'll just lay these out quickly and then we'll move into the second chapter. There's the hypothetical embryo, the observed embryo, the experimental embryo, the inherited, the evolved and computed, the visible, and then the engineered and constructed embryo. So we have this seemingly kind of unified, simple object that turns out to be very multiple, very interesting, and very much a, a kind of transforming object over the course of this story. Chapter two brings readers into the first two historical periods of embryo studies, and you call this the hypothetical and observed embryos. Now you set out a basic division early on in this chapter that's, I think, important for listeners and readers to understand because you mentioned that until very, very recently, this division continued to characterize debates about human growth and evolution. And this is the division between epigenetic and preformationist approaches to understanding the emergence of uh, embryonic life. So can you start us out by explaining that? What's the difference between epigenetic versus preformationist approaches, and why is that Im division important, and what do we need to know about that to understand what's coming next? Sure, um, and thanks for all your kind words. I think you're more articulate about some of this than I am, so thank you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, okay, so... First of all, we should acknowledge that there are a number of, of historians of science like Shirley Rowe and Peter Bowler who have done a great job of talking about the background, the ancient discussions about about preformation and epigenesis um, as well. The really, really important issues here. Um, the, the basic idea is that epigenesis involves gradual unfolding of whatever it is, unfolding of form, unfolding of life. And it's an Aristotelian idea, uh, so we start there because Aristotle is the beginning of everything, um, except for the turtles, if you go all the way down, if you're a philosopher. But okay, but, but Aristotle. So Aristotle says that what he sees in the, in the beginning um, with reproduction is fluids coming together from male and female, and there's no form there. There's just fluid. And gradually over time, form emerges. So epigenetic ideas then develop in various complex ways over time, obviously. We don't still hold quite that simple view, but, but, uh, but, but they all are characterized by the idea that you don't have form in the beginning, and form emerges. It's gradual. It unfolds in some way. There's something that helps direct it, and there are different theories about that. Preformationism or various forms of predeterminism have, in contrast, the idea that there is form there at the beginning, maybe literally um, like the 18th century, 19th century ideas that were that really thought there was a little person or a little thing there that, um, that unfolds in various ways, or maybe less literally uh, that that maybe there's something that's predetermined. Maybe we have a set of chromosomes, a genome. It's predetermined, preformed in some ways, or pre-informed, um, so that it's all laid out and it's just a matter of unpacking what's there. And and these are two fundamentally different different ideas about about the way that life works, the way that other things work as well. Um, where one is a gradual emergence and one is there from the beginning, and much follows from that. Um, it follows. A, you know, where are you going to look for evidence? 
what are you going to count as evidence? Um, what are you going to look for? What are you going to take as given? What are your underlying assumptions? And so these these themes play out up to present day, where where it's pretty interesting to talk to folks at meetings about developmental biology, where the developmental geneticists and the and the embryologist argue with each other, and developmental geneticists are often much more preformationistic, and embryologists are much more epigenetic, um, where epigenesis means something different, or epigenetics means something different today, but epigenetic in this old sense. So so those are pretty fundamental competing views of life that, that exist out there. Now, since the, or from the beginning of your story, people are observing the generation of animals. So even Aristotle, as you mentioned, observed chicks developing in an egg. But the nature of that observation really had significant changed significantly over the course of your story, and that change had significant consequences for the history that you're telling us. So you focus in chapter two on the importance of the emergence of the microscope as an observational tool. Can you talk a little bit? I, I know asking you to talk a little bit about it is in some. <laughs> ways on pairs. It's a huge change. I mean, it's a, potentially a book of its own. Um, but what do we need to know, basically, um, to understand the significance of the microscope as it informs your argument in this part of the book, um, it, to, in terms of the history of the microscope as an observational tool in this context and the transformations that it wrought? Yeah, great. Um, the microscope basically becomes an instrument that helps that helps to inform observation, but but also for those people who are enthusiastic my, microscopists, um, what it does is say that it's important to use the microscope, that the object that one sees is somehow better than, it gives better evidence than the object that one imagined or that one theoretically could think about before. And so the microscope and the fact that it makes embryos, not human embryos yet, but uh, the other species of embryos visible in, in certain ways, and it allows the changes to be observed. It's extremely important in sort of restructuring the arguments. It's still their epigenesist and preformationist, but what they're going to count as evidence starts to change, where some some folks say, so the preformationists at points in the 18th and into the 19th century, some of the preformationists say, okay, I look through the microscope and I can't see a little form there at the beginning, but that's just because my microscope isn't good enough yet. So let's work on improving the microscope. And for others, they look and they say, I don't see any little form there at the beginning. That shows that there isn't any. Um, and so the, the object that's seen through the microscope becomes a kind of thing um, that, that becomes the subject really for discussions. Thank you. Now, as we move through this chapter, you um, introduce us to some of the key figures in this early history, including von Baer, including Darwin, Haeckel. But one of the figures that you introduce, Edmund Beecher Wilson, is a way for us also to talk briefly about one of the sites that emerge is really central to the book and central to this whole topic, and that's the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole. So you talk about uh, Wilson's work looking at mating worms, and this evokes also a moment um, late in the book in the acknowledgments when you talk about your own experience working at Woods Hole and have 
bring us into this absolutely gorgeous imagined scene of Wilson, I think, simulating moonlight on the surface of the water. And by shining a light on the surface of the water, um, being able to see the, this mating dance of these beautiful worms kind of coming out through the water. It's just a really arresting image that I think is going to be with me now um, for a very long time. Um, so this, so at this part of the book, the marine um, biological laboratory actually emerges as a crucial site in this history. And since you do bring up um, late in the book your own experience at Woods Hole, it seems to me to be worth maybe taking a moment to talk a little bit about that as a site for this study and perhaps the importance of that within this history that you're telling and within the book and your experience working on the book. Sure. And as a matter as as a as a matter of fact, I'm sitting at Woods Hole right now in a beautiful day and I'm looking out over the water where Frank Lilly, who was the second director here, used to live. And so it's hard to escape the sort of spirit of thinking about embryos and thinking about science when you're in Woods Hole. Um so Right. The Marine Biological Laboratory is a very special place today, and maybe we can come back to that a little bit about what the future looks like. But but, um, but it, it has been a special place for people all along, and I think it's partly because it's so quiet. Nothing happens here that so much happens here. Um, so, so it's just, it's a small town. People still leave their doors unlocked and cars unlocked and things like that. And, and the library is wonderful. It has been extremely valuable for many people, especially before electronic resources were, were much available. Um, lots of famous people have written their books and articles here. It, it's, a, it's a place where people come together and wander into each other's labs. They go to talks. They go to the dining hall. They are just sort of interconnecting all the time. And so and so, just, um, just a couple days ago, I was walking down the hall from the library to the restroom, and there's the head of the microscopy facility I say, hey, Louie, and you ask him a question, and he says, how are we doing this summer, and, and how are my grad students, and what are they working on, and, and, um, and, and so we had a conversation that went into what was, what was up, and I think that's happened here since the beginning in 1888, so for, for Wilson and for others, I feel like I can kind of understand the spirit of what the research was like for them, because I think it's still a lot the same, even though we have fancier equipment today, we ask slightly different questions today, we're still asking a lot of the same basic ones. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's just really a special place that goes along with this, with this science. Great, thank you. So as we move um, into the next chapter, we move from that special place to a whole host of other special places that are situated within the larger um, case study of the laboratory as a space. So chapter three looks at experimental embryos in the laboratory. Scientists here begin experimenting as well as observing. And so this brings a history of experimentation into this history of observation that we've been also looking at in the previous chapter in an effort to try to understand processes of development. And a lot of the cases in introduced in this chapter are going to lay the foundation for some of the major concepts that we'll come back to at the end of the book when we look at contemporary debates over embryos and development. So we'll talk briefly about some of those. But what you bring up, or a point that you bring up really early in this chapter seems really central for us to talk about, even briefly, because it is something that's going to come up um, implicitly, if not explicitly, at the very end of the book. And this is the idea of a revolt from morphology. 
So you introduced the question, did biologists at the turn of the 20th century, as you put it, see themselves as intentionally different from their predecessors in a way that we ought to characterize as a revolt? Um, so I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that as a question and the importance of that at this stage of the story. The reason why I'll ask you to talk about that is that this issue of how do we understand the work of contemporary evolutionary biologists and embryologists in the context of previous work really becomes really central to making some of the policy points also that you come back to at the very end of the book. So the question is, the idea of a revolt from morphology. Um, what is your, or what do we need to understand about this, and how is this important for understanding um, modern science right now? Oh boy, um, my friend Gar Allen would love you uh, for bringing that up, since Gar and his colleague um, Bill Coleman both invoked that idea of revol revolt from morphology um, as something that happened at the end of the 19th century, they claim in, in different ways, and it made a difference in moving away from natural history, from thinking about structure to thinking about more complex aspects of biology. That's the claim. Um, and and both Coleman at the end of his uh, biology of the 19th century and Allen in his life science of the 20th century talk about that um, and emphasize the differences, especially Gar does. And, um, and I've argued for years with Gar about what that actually means. But, but clearly there's a move to embrace experimentation. And maybe this is a little bit about, um, it's not quite preformation and epigenesis, but a little bit. Um, so, so from my point of view and a number of, uh, of my other colleagues who agree with this, um, what, what happened at the end of the 19th into the 20th century is not something totally new, but something that, as, as you put it, sort of self-consciously, intentionally um, different in that people were moving into the lab and saying that we need to take the living organisms into the lab and peer at them and use different instruments in order to understand them, and that at times we're going to have to kill them in order to be able to to understand how they live because we can't see inside well enough. So there's an embracing of that experimental approach, but seeing it as a revolt from something or a rejection of something is what I think is just wrong. I think it's embracing the natural history, embracing interest in morphology, structure, et cetera, et cetera, but adding to it a particular way of understanding, of understanding life. Gar Allen, who likes to say, I'm a Marxist, and you know, there, there's thesis and antithesis. There have to be revolts. There have to be moments of dissension, um, emphasizes the difference and sees it more as if here rises experimentation almost preformed as a, as a new kind of thing. It's not the gradual epigenetic unfolding of biology. It's a new emergence or a new thing that comes along with experimentation and scientists um, embracing it. And I think actually in the history of biology for the period from the 70, mid-70s to a couple decades later, um, most of us doing history of biology kind of argued about that. Uh, is it one? Is it the other? Is it gradual? Is it sudden? Is it a revolt? Is it not a revolt? I, I think both Gar and I um, uh, reflect on this and say, oh, what a silly argument. It's both. It's neither. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a mix. But 
clearly, you, you put it well, that clearly there's a group that sees themselves as intentionally different, as embracing materialism, as seeking to understand, and in Jacques Loeb's case, to control, but to understand life in a, in a way that, that requires experimentation. Mm-hmm. Great. And the, I'll just mention this and we'll come back to it at the end. But for listeners, the re, uh, like many other, I'd say pretty much all other aspects of the book, there's a reason why you're, um, this comes up where it does in the book. And there's a reason why this is part of this history, at least as I perceive it as one reader, right? Um, I can't you know, speak to the intentionality of um can't speak to intentionality, but this is my experience. Um, so I'll put it this way. The effect of this um, is that it works really well to plant the seeds for us to understand what later on is going to be a really important point. And that is, at least, again, as far as um, it appears to one reader, which is all I can speak for, um, when we look back at the history in terms of understanding contemporary debates over whether to cut off certain kinds of research or not as fundamentally different or not from what's come before, understanding this longer history is a more of a, con- a continuity than a series of radical breaks is really important for understanding how to make decisions about how to move forward. So this is just one of many moments where the history really deeply informs contemporary issues that are going to come later. Yeah, great. So in the course of the chapter, and I won't ask you to talk um, about this because we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get to some of these issues as we move on, but as, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the chapter does lay the foundation by bringing up and explaining the, some of the concepts and the histories of the concepts that are going to come up um, later on in our exploration. And these include um, ideas of cell development and differentiation, the importance of the nucleus versus the cytoplasm in cell differentiation, um, Morgan's regeneration research the emergence of transplantation techniques and tissue culturing, all of these um, issues that readers and listeners might associate with very contemporary debates about biological sciences and embryology have their roots in the history of biology. And this chapter really wonderfully um, situates the emergence of these kinds of laboratory (coughs) techniques and issues um, so that we can see how they develop and use this to inform what comes later. Now, as we move to chapter four, we move to understanding the embryo in terms of inheritance, but also in terms of computation. Chapter four introduces genetics, inheritance, and evolution as they begin to shape research and debates around it. And this chapter focuses on like the mid 20th century through about the 1980s. Now, there are some transformations in the science um, in the late 1950s and 1960s. At this point, embryology becomes widely known as developmental biology. And along the way, there's a new emphasis on genetics and a new focus, as you explained very well in this chapter, on the role of chromosomes and the nucleus in development. Now, one of the really interesting things that happens at this point of the story is the emergence of computational approaches to development and genetics. There are efforts here to understand the genome as a system, and this has all kinds of implications moving forward. So can you talk a little bit about that for us, the the emergence of computational approaches to development and genetics? What's crucial for us to understand about that development in this part of the story um, to ground what's going to come later? What's, what's really interesting there is that 
some people fairly early on embraced this approach and said, exactly as you put it, the genome is a system, but the genome interacting with the cytoplasm and in the context of the larger cell, which is in the context of a large organism, which is in the context of a larger environment, that all of that is a system and a complex system. And so some people embraced that and said, this is really complex. And in order to be able to look at all these different levels, which they didn't use that term, but we do today. But in order to be able to look at all these different levels and look at the interactions, we need much more complex computational systems that are going to give us tools, new tools, to to bring together all the different kinds of information and make sense of it. Um, I, I think that until fairly recently, that's been a fairly minority approach. And in fact, some of the early folks working on on computational models were were admired, but but uh, but sort of ignored by those people, especially who didn't quite have the math background or or didn't really understand why we needed to move in that in that theoretical way. So so it's very interesting that. Just fairly recently, people are, with systems biology, for example, are really starting to say, oh, wait, we really need people who are going into development to have training and understanding of computational tools, of computational systems, which I'll just put in a side note here, an advertisement for one of my colleagues. But my, my colleague, Manfred Lauwekler, is, is heading up a, a group of grad students and a, and a team of programmers and, and students, undergrad and grad both, who are developing a computational history and philosophy of science approach, which I think is really exciting, and, and we're all just delighted to be part of that. So the recognition that we've got complex systems, that some of those complex systems can only be understood in some ways, at least by bringing together pieces of information, by recognizing lots of different things of data, and then starting to develop computational and theoretical systems. Recognizing that is really important for developmental biology probably for history and philosophy of science, probably for other things as well as we go forward. That's right. Thank you so much. And among the other things that this chapter does is also um, sort of introduce the emergence of, a, of Davidson and Britton's battery type model of the genome as a system. So um, among other things, readers and listeners who are interested in kind of diagrammatic histories of science and ideas of um, sort of visualizing systems might uh, find this chapter to be of special interest to them. Now, as we move into the 1970s, we move into the fifth chapter. By the middle of the 20th century, as you put it in chapter five, the visible human embryo, what you call the socially imagined embryo was joined by what you call the physically imagined embryo as a biological object. So as the socially imagined embryo was seen as a kind of mini human being, the biological embryo developed gradually. And so we see echoes in this part of the story of this develop or of this distinction between an epigenetic versus a preformationist kind of kind of approach that we set up early in the story. Now the big or one of the big moments in this chapter and one of the big moments in this part of the book is 1978. So in 1978, the technique of in vitro fertilization becomes possible, and this really transforms not only the observability of embryos, but also the larger story. It makes the embryo more public, and it really is, a, is an important touchstone in this larger history. So can you talk about that a little bit in terms of um, 
making the embryo public and making it observable and the relationship between the two, what do we need to know about in vitro fertilization at this moment? There's so much that's written, been written about in vitro fertilization and its impact and, and, and the way that it's understood from a feminist perspective of the, of the people who are donating um, the material. Uh, I think in a way that complicates the story because it's hard. We have so much background that it's hard to step back and say, what was going on in the science at the time? And that's what I'm trying to do here because I started reading a lot about Robert Edwards and, and he's a fascinating guy. So he's a scientist who was involved in the Steptoe and Edwards team um, that brought that, that first IVF um, baby uh, to, to success. And, and so understanding what he was trying to do is, is really part of the story here. It's part of unfolding, as you put it, unfolding the biology, um, the gradual emergence of the, of the biology. Um, so Edwards was working on stem cells, actually. He was studying stem cells. And he said, well, that's not going anywhere. So, um, so I think I'll turn to to this project that Steptoe asked him to work on, namely trying to understand human human fertilization process better, which is related developmentally in in some ways. It's kind of funny that he, he kind of laughed at himself later about the stem cell thing and thought, oh, maybe I should have stuck with that after all. Oh, wait, no, I did something important. So, okay, it's good enough. Um, <laughs> anyway, he finally got the Nobel Prize shortly before he died, so a lot of people were happy about that. But I, I think what's important with the with the IVF case that I try to st- tell here is that the, the science of figuring out what was going on and how to get the cell cycles right and that sort of thing, the science is kind of juxtaposed with the social issues, which for a lot of people got mixed up because around the same time or a few years before, there was recombinant DNA, there's Roe v. Wade. There are a whole lot of things that in the public mind shape what they think an embryo is, what they think a developing human is. It's really, it's really muddy um, publicly for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Now, as you kind of take us into this story, one of the really important points I think that you're making here, or at least one of the important points from my perspective, is a comparison between how this is unfolding in, for example, the UK and how it unfolds in the US. And the import, one of the important points being made here is that the US doesn't have any federal guidelines for embryo research and clinics. And this is important because it's very distinct from the other historical case study or one of the other historical case studies that you briefly mentioned here, and that's um, the situation in the UK. So this this seems to be really important in the context of this chapter. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are the consequences for this part of the story of the absence of federal guidelines in the US for embryo research and clinics? I'm glad you asked it that way. What are the implications or the consequences rather than what are the causes? Because what are the causes? Um, the answer is uh, politics. But, um, okay, so the the implications of 
the fact, so let's be clear what the fact is, the implications are, are profound, I think. So the fact is that after in vitro fertilization, which of course the very first the very first case was in the UK, so maybe that made it more poignant to, to folks, but but um, but also it was a different political and social environment. Um, that the UK responded by appointing a commission and having very serious discussions about what do we think this means, what is an embryo, what do we think ought to happen. Um, look, this is now possible doing IVF, it's likely to grow. Let's get ahead and think what we want to have happen. Let's think how to regulate it. Um, let's assume that we should regulate it. Um, in the United States, and that happened in some other places as well, Australia being one of them. But in the United States, there was, oh, dear, oh, dear, maybe we should regulate. Oh, maybe we should outlaw it. Oh, no, we should allow it all. You know, oh, we want complete freedom. Oh, no, we want not complete freedom. And so there were there was this sort of muddle of debates. And then what happened fairly quickly is fertility business took off and had strong interest in continuing. And those heart breaking or heart-rending or heart-thrilling um, successes, so failures or successes, of, uh, of infertile couples who now suddenly had children sort of lobbying for IVF to go forward in the U.S. led to just inertia. And so no regulations at the federal level. In the U.S., we tend to pass regulations of that sort and about medicine, if it's related to medicine, at the state level. So even at the state level, for a long time, there was very little in the way of regulation about about IVF. So the business took off, and then it becomes an extremely important business, and then there's very strong interest in protecting its interests and not, not having regulation. So as a result, really consequences of that. Every case that comes up about embryos after that kind of falls in that context where we don't have clear regulations. We don't have a clear regulatory environment. We're not even always clear whether it's the FDA or something else that's supposed to to regulate procedures. And And so we just kind of muddle along. And so the, as the chapter concludes, there are other consequences that look at the imbrication, uh, or there are other um, ways in which this imbrication of the business side of things and debates over the nature of life um, and the nature of property also um, really come out. And, and those include the consequences for debates over when life starts and how best to define, to, uh, define an embryo for uh, new forms of contraception, like the morning after pill. So we see sort of pharmaceutical industry coming into this. And we also see debates over whether or not embryos can be ruled as a property um, and what this means for transformations of ideas of parenthood. And so listeners who are interested in those elements of the story um, can find really interesting discussions of that at the end of, or in in the last parts of chapter five. Now, as we move to chapter six, we move to the engineered and constructed embryo, and there's some really fascinating stuff happening here. So this is initiated, perhaps, as you put it most notably here, by Jacques Loeb in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And since the book pays um, a lot of uh, attention to Loeb and his work, especially his idea 
of uh, a kind of what you call a mechanistic conception of life and life as engineering. I think it's worth spending a couple of minutes talking about Loeb and, and perhaps the implications of his approach to life as engineering for what comes next in the story. So would you mind talking a little bit about that Loeb engineering and what matters um, crucially about this for us to understand what comes next? Sure, and he's extremely important at the Marine Biological Laboratory since he spent a lot of time here. Um, I I want to say my very dear friend, Philip Pauly, who died much too young, despite efforts with stem cells and other things to cure his cancer, um, Phil wrote a great study of Jacques Loeb the, and, and looked at the effect to control life that, that Loeb had. And I think anybody interested in this topic should, should definitely look at that book and look at Phil's work on that. Um, so, so Jacques Loeb came from Germany to the United States. He came as a materialist um, with a materialistic philosophy that was more common probably to be articulated the way he did um, in Germany. But, uh, but he settled in the United States and, and set out to have a mechanistic, so materialistic and mechanistic, conception of life and to show how everything about life, including ethics, um, and he re- rejected religion, that's not important, um, how, how everything can be explained in terms of, uh, of, of material and, and development goes along with that. And so he has a, a sort of life's work, and, and that is to establish how different life processes work out in in materialistic terms. And then it's not just because we are crass materialists and want to cut down anything anybody cares about. It's in order that we can, in fact, control life with an implicit message that we can make it better. That, in fact, once we understand how the material the material body as a whole and material cells, um, if when we understand how those work, we can control them. We can cause them to do things we want. We can engineer them. He didn't ever talk about regenerative biology because that term didn't exist yet. The idea didn't really fully exist yet, but he probably would have been really, really excited about that idea. And among the consequences of this kind of idea, you talk about um, new approaches to tissue engineering and the formation of in vitro skin. You also talk about, um, and there, there are a couple of things I'll ask you about that come out of this, but one of the really interesting things perhaps for listeners and for readers that comes out of this is the idea of recombinant DNA. Now, you talk in this chapter about, um, in 1989, a a new kind of genetic test or a new kind of embryonic test emerges. This is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or PGD, and there are some pretty important consequences to that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that in the context of this chapter? What's important for listeners to understand about that, to understand the argument you're making here? Yeah, great. Thanks for reminding me to do that. Um, most people, when they talk about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and especially bioethics, bioethicists, when they talk about it, talk about implications for eugenics and and when it's possible to do this kind of testing, which is before an embryo is implanted in the uterus, it's in a dish and it's possible to test cells. Most people say, okay, is that right? Do we want people to be allowed to, to test for whether it's a male or female, to test for other kinds of genetic so-called diseases. Uh, Maybe we don't want that. That's what most of the discussion is. But the interesting thing, I think, biologically, the interesting thing about the whole procedure is that it involves taking an embryo 
at up to the eight cell stage, and typically it is at the eight cell stage, and taking one of the cells or two cells, or you could take seven cells, but the protocol that's used is initially one and then two cells and taking them away from the embryo. So you've got this embryo, which consists of eight eggs, and and somebody in the first place, and we're not quite sure who did it first, somebody in the first place said, oh, it's okay, I can take away one of those eight cells and the remaining seven are still going to know how to make a whole organism and it's going to be healthy and it's going to be fine and no problem. And if I take one of those cells, I can take it in the next room, so to speak. I can take it in the next room and, and do genetic testing on it and I can do all the tests that I want. And then, in fact, the protocol said, oops, sometimes for certain tests we need a second cell. So let's say that that's okay. I mean, that's pretty remarkable for people to have said, oh, it's okay, we can take away one of the cells and the rest will still be all right. Now, in fact, that's where the history is important. In fact, Hans Driesch and other other embryologists from early in the century, 20th century, had, had shown that embryos have a tremendous capacity to regulate their development and, in fact, to respond to changes. So, in fact, it would have been reasonable to predict that the seven cells could could go on and make up a whole, even with one cell missing. And tests in mice suggested that that works, and mice are a lot like us, even though we don't like to admit that, so they're a useful experimental organism. But still, it's just astonishing that... um, that, that that test was done and it worked and now thousands and thousands of healthy babies have have been born um, having having had the test done and and um, and so probably today we would be too nervous to to develop such a test we would worry about the consequences but whoever did it in the first place and um, and took that sort of bold leap um, really did something that's helped a lot of people as it turns out. Thank you. Now, one of the other ideas of um, that go along with the idea of the engineered and constructed embryo that comes out of this chapter also really nicely leads us into the next. You talk about um, transplantation technology and chimeras. And of course, one of the most famous transplantation cases is um, cloning, and, and is it, which is a kind of transplantation in the case of Dolly the sheep. Now, I won't ask you to talk necessarily about that case. I'm sure, you know, but this is probably one of the cases that's most familiar to listeners um, and to readers of the book, but perhaps it's one of the really interesting things that the book does, though, is to defamiliarize that in a really, really productive way. You bring us into the sort of media consequences of the um, claims that are of the cloning of Dolly the sheep, and one of those consequences is that a scientist, a Princeton scientist, is asked about this case, and this person says, um, among other things, um, something that Im- that involves the claim all of science fiction is true, right? This is such a dramatic case, all of science fiction is true. Well, of course, not all of science fiction is true. I mean, of course, that's not the case. And one of the things that Chapter 7 does is to really say, look, um, you know, there's a range of, of stuff that's possible and stuff that's not possible in the manipulation of embryos. And it's really important for us to understand that range. And one of the ways to do that is to really carefully distinguish the kinds of stem cells and the kinds of materials that are involved in this sort of research, what they can be used for, um, and what the different implications of them um, really are. And I think since this is such an important part of this um, 
it makes sense to spend a little bit of time talking about this. So the chapter really carefully distinguishes between and explains three types of cells and their important differences for our purposes. These are embryonic stem cells, adult stem cells, and induced pluripotent stem cells. For our listeners, can you, if, if this is, and I don't know if this is a reasonable request, but is there a way to kind of briefly talk about the important differences between those three and why that, um, why it's important in your opinion to understand those differences um, in terms of the larger argument that this part of the book is making? Oh no, I feel the need to jump up and write on the board and draw pictures <laughs> because that's what we do to talk about this stuff. Yeah, okay, okay, but let me give it a try, um, at, at least a little bit, um, sure. because it's really important and, and people use these phrases or terms as if they understood them and sometimes do and sometimes don't. Yeah, so there really are three different kinds of stem cells. So po focusing on, on stem cells, um, there are actually other kinds too, cancer stem cells and other, and other things, but these three get kind of muddled together in the discussion. So, so embryonic stem cells are stem cells that come from embryos. Okay, that sounds pretty clear, but what does that mean? Um, they're usually that term refers to what are called pluripotent stem cells that are found in the inner cell mass of the embryo at the blastocyst stage. So this is where all the freshmen kind of roll their eyes and go, ah, that was a lot of words. But, <laughs> but, um, but the blastocyst stage is a stage where there's a clump of cells. They're not differentiated to get. Um, this is the latest stage that is found in a glass dish before it gets, or any kind of dish, that's before the embryo is transplanted into a, into a human um, mother or woman. Um, some people don't like to call it mother, but I will. Um, anyway, so, so the embryo, the blastocyst stage of the embryo has this bunch of cells which are pluripotent, meaning that they're plurally potent. They have the capacity to become any kind of cell, not all kinds, but any kind. So any, any stem cell can be differentiated in a way that it could become a nerve or a heart or a whatever or a whatever. So not everything, but those ores. Um, that's different from totipotent cells that can become everything, which is what we had at that eight cell stage, which is why that pre-implantation genetic diagnosis worked because the rest of the cells had the capacity to become the whole or the total. Okay, I hope that it's not too confusing so far. But so that's embryonic stem cells. Adult stem cells. Aha. This is a tricky, tricky term. So a, a, a lot of a lot of people who claim, I am pro-life, I am opposed to embryonic stem cell research, but I'm in favor of adult stem cell research, would be horrified to learn that adult stem cells sometimes, um, even often in some labs, come from fetuses. So they're called adult stem cells anytime it's after the embryonic stage. And they're called that because they don't have that sort of pure, if that's an okay phrase here, pluripotency. So adult stem cells are stem cells that are a little bit farther on their way to becoming one of those, any of the various kinds of things. So they might be stem cells that are destined to become nerve cells or heart muscle cells or whatever. Um, they might still be pluripotent in, in adult, but they're relatively rare. So there's a little fuzziness between 
between the two, but the the technical term is embryonic stem cells come from embryos. Adult stem cells come from anything after the embryo um, and on. Great. Okay, so far? Yes. Uh, then the, the induced pluripotent stem cells. All right, so what's that? Well, pluripotent stem cells turned out to be extremely interesting for research purposes because they can because they do have that capacity to become any kind of cell but the embryonic pluripotent stem cells require mm, harvesting the cells from killing whatever um taking the pluripotent cells from the embryo, which means the embryo can't continue to survive. So researchers in Japan initially, as well as the United States, researchers said, oh, is there a way that we could induce? Could we cause cells to become like pluripotent stem cells from embryos, but they're not from embryos anymore. This is an ingenious idea. A lot of people thought it could never happen, sort of like the reaction to cloning Dolly. You know, no, it can never be done. We, we, we couldn't imagine this. It means anything is true. But, um, but so in 2006 with mice and 2008 with, um, with humans, a team of researchers, again, in Japan and another in the U.S., used various genetic combinations to induce cells to become like pluripotent stem cells. Not any kind of cell, but lots of kind of cells. So skin cells. So you've got a bunch of skin cells, and if you wiggle around a lot, you leave some of them behind in the air and on the table or chair or whatever. So take those skin cells, stick in the right cocktail of genetic of genetic factors, and it's possible to induce those cells to become like pluripotent stem cells. That was really an earthquake sort of moment in in developmental biology. That, that was possible. People had assumed when cells become, get differentiated as something like a skin cell, they're skin cells forever. I mean, that's your destiny. That's your fate. You're a skin cell. Too bad. You don't get to be anything else. No, no. We can reprogram them to become something else. So the idea of genetic reprogramming is something which isn't a totally new idea, but the technology to make it happen builds on a century of previous research that people like Jacques Glubitz sort of imagined, it builds on that imagination to become real and, and do just tremendously exciting, maybe horrifying, pretty fascinating um, technology-driven science. Great. And thank you so much. That was super clear. And the reason, um, well, among the many reasons why I think that's really important is that um, this is one of many examples where the book is really taking um, what, a, a phrase or a term or a concept that's often very little understood and um, invoked as a kind of blanket aggregate, so stem cells, in really important debates about life, about embryonic research, about policy, and showing, hey, look, it's much more complicated than this, but not so complicated that we can't understand it. So here, here's clearly, you know, at least some differences between three main types of stem cells. And if you understand the differences, the different things that can be done with them, the different ways that they're formed, you really begin to understand really um, how to how to make decisions about individual uh, debates and policy issues 
in a way that's much more informed and much more, I think, finely um, nuanced. So this is this is one of the reasons I'm highlighting this in our conversation. I think this is really a, a kind of model moment of why this kind of history is really important. So. Another reason why this history is really important is that it speaks to larger issues of not just research, but who's funding the research. So that's another issue that comes up in this chapter, and I think it's important for us to at least touch on this briefly. The chapter really begins by looking at the importance of the historical notion of government funding of research, and it takes us into what you call um, the social contract for science and society. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's important for us to understand about that in order to ground the kind of informed um, picture of stem cell research and, and its consequences that you're giving us in this chapter? Yeah, a lot of people have written a lot about about that topic, sort of why is it that we have publicly funded research? Why is it a good thing? How did it come to be? Um, historians of technology especially have, have had a lot to say. Um, what What's changed in the story, I think, is the, the standard story has been about how we got the rise of something like the National Science Foundation, which is peer-reviewed science and the idea that we're going to fund we're gonna fund curiosity-driven research with the social contract agreement or understanding that when we invest in in that in that kind of research we're going to get results that the public cares about so the public should invest in whatever the scientists think is the best science that's certified through peer review as being such because it will in fact have payoffs but we don't know what the payoffs are going to be so if we're too driven to say hey you guys we'll give you a pot of money go solve the cancer problem, we probably won't get there. We have to let the scientists lead the way. So that's the standard story. What What's happened in recent years is that more people are saying, wait, we've gone too far that way. We just keep investing lots and lots of money and there's never enough. And wouldn't we be wiser to actually think about mission-driven science? Wouldn't we be wiser to think about what kinds of outcomes we want, what kinds of results we want, and maybe not go all the way in the pendulum swing back to, oh, it's going to be all entirely mission-driven, go solve this exact problem, but move more in that in that direction so that we ask people to explain what what good is this for? You know, what or what what is this why are you doing this? What is how's the payoff going to be? That kind of thing. So we're we're at an interesting moment where NIH and the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Congress, maybe literally right today, are, are debating what kind of research do we want? How do we want it to be done? Do we trust peer review? Um, I wouldn't be surprised within five to ten years if we if we see some politically driven differences. The assumption by most academics is that those will be bad. Um, Maybe they won't all be bad. Maybe some things will make for some efficiencies. Maybe they'll make us think more seriously about what we do and why we do it and and whether we deserve public funding to do what we do. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's uh, we could have, I think, a whole yep. hour-long conversation <laughs> yep. about that. It's very tantalizing. I won't ask you to talk for another hour about that, but that's, uh, <laughs> okay. that's really food for thought. 
Now, there's as we move forward into the book, um, there's an entire chapter that I wish, again, we could talk for another hour about. This is the chapter um, that focuses on uh, current and future engineering work on humans. So most of the embryonic research described prior to this has been work that's using non-human species. This really looks ahead to work um, engineering uh, human embryos and human cells and human tissues. And it focuses on the use of embryonic research for clinical therapies. This is a really important part of the book for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that understanding the potential uses of this research for clinical therapies is important for understanding how to make decisions about you know, how we judge which policies and what kind of research we want to support and not. So this is a really important part of the story, and it's important that it's here situated at this part of the story because um, the therapeutic implications of this research are crucial for understanding how we move forward. So you taught you bring us into the larger field of synthetic biology here, including tissue synthesis, so using cells to construct things like tracheas and veins and lungs on a chip, synthesizing cells from biological parts like the work of Craig Venter, and possibly at least the idea of synthesizing embryos. Now we I we don't have time to talk about all of this, but is there a particular element of this synthetic biology story that you are most excited about or most interested in that you'd like to share with listeners? It's all exciting. It's all quite <laughs> amazing stuff. When I hear scientists talk about this work or when I read the papers, it's just it's it's astonishing what we're doing what we're doing these days and it's just hard to keep up with it. Um, the NIH has a good website that talks about clinical trials and talks about in, innovations in stem cell research and and regenerative medicine and it, it's just amazing all the all the things that are going on. Why it's amazing is um, the same reason that it shouldn't be amazing. So, um, so again, the history should tell us that we couldn't shouldn't be quite so surprised, but but we are because we forgot a lot of things. So, again, going back to the early twentieth century, there was a lot of recognition that that embryos are incredibly regulatory, that they have incredible capacities to respond to changes. To We can transplant parts, we can cut out parts, and they can respond in quite interesting ways. And then for a long time, we got so hung up about genetics that we kind of forgot all these fascinating things that, that embryos do. And what a lot, of, a lot of people are doing now is experimenting with with taking a scaffolding, for example, and and embedding it with stem cells, and then using that to to transplant and to replace a trachea, as you said, or or, or various other parts, there are various other experiments going on, and and so it's really using the organisms' just remarkable capacity to respond to know what to do um, that that characterizes this research. But what goes along with it is also the fact that. It's not perfect, and that if we get ahead of ourselves and go transplant things and say, oh, let's stick some stem cells in and see what happens, um, we end up with problems. So attempts to transplant pluripotent stem cells into heart into heart in a few cases with children caused cancers and all kinds of problems that, um, that, that really, again, probably should have been anticipated um, because there were pluripotent stem cells and we somehow expected them to know what to do. Um, and we shouldn't because they didn't. And anyway, 
what we have is here just, again, amazing science going on, a lot of experiments going on, a lot of people starting to recognize that the the organism is a pretty complex and, and fascinating integrated whole complex system and the more we understand its wholeness and the way the parts interact the better able we are to use our knowledge to in fact bring about cures but also bring about better understanding great and this actually brings us to the end of the book um so the the last thing that i'll mention before we move to the conclusion is the last part of the book and this is therefore dot 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 um, so this therefore considers the uh, the implications of the story as we move forward. There's a lot of really fascinating discussions in here, including um, debates about fetal pain, whether or not it, it makes sense to talk about that, how we talk about that. But what I want to do is just for listeners, um, mention just the, the closing of the book, the last two sentences, and ask you just to speak to it a little bit. Here's the closing of the book. If we take biological knowledge, and this, this is a quote, if we take biological knowledge to be the appropriate basis for policymaking on matters that include claims about science, we should legislate accordingly. Anything else, including some recent policies enacted at the state level, is tantamount to relying on metaphysics and claiming it as science. So I wonder if you could kind of close us before we come to the conclusion um, by just speaking a little bit to that. This distinction, I mean, the book ends by making a very clear distinction between metaphysics and science and coming down really strongly um, on that division. So do you want to speak to that a little bit? Uh, sure, that could be another hour or yes. so, <laughs> and I'd probably get in big trouble along the way. Um, yeah, so it's a really, I'm making this really radical claim here that, hey, we should care about reason, that we should care about enlightenment, that we should actually pay attention to science. And if we're going to talk about science, we should at least try to get it right rather than try to pretend that things are scientific when, when they're not. And that's a ridiculous claim that that's a, a radical claim because that's a really conservative, simple claim in a way. Um, and, and yet it seems radical in the particular political environment that we have um, at times. And I fully expect to get in trouble, by the way, for, for attacking <laughs> the personhood movement and saying that fetuses can't feel pain at 20 weeks. But by golly, they can't. So let's get the biology right. Um, yeah, so so... It's important that if we're, uh, here's the point, if it's important if we're going to talk about science, let's talk about science. If we're going to talk about values, metaphysics, etc., then fine. The science isn't going to tell us what's good or what's true or what we should do in society. We have to argue about that in other ways in the political and social arena. But insofar as we're claiming something as a scientific fact, on scientific grounds, then we ought to get that right. Thank you. And I think um, the reason why I think it was important to bring up is that the book is structured so thoughtfully and so carefully, and the fact that this is you know, the closing of the book seemed important to me. So Jane, there's a ton of material we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich book, and we've only really talked about some elements of the chapters. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? I think that it's really important to be true to yourself, all you young people out there in America. No, um, uh, I, th I think that 
there there was a point when I was in graduate school and and fascinated by embryos and fascinated by the science. There was a point at which people said, "Oh, there's no future in that. You ought to study history of of molecular biology or genetics because that's where the action is, and you'll never get anywhere otherwise." And then there was a point, and I ignored them. And then there was a point later where people said. Oh, this is too simplistic. Your approach is ridiculous. Why are you talking for the general public? You should be talking about your particular theory in history, and you should be putting forth your particular point of view, and you should be writing for scholars in your field. Because how is anybody ever going to take you seriously? And I didn't pay attention. Um, and so I think it's really important to be true to ourselves. And if we think that, in fact, history and philosophy of science have a larger role, and that being publicly engaged and trying to talk for a wider audience, as well as for our colleagues and our professional peers, then we should do it. And I think here's the most important thing. So as I get older, I think I have a responsibility, and I, I would call for everybody else who's older and everybody who's in a position to decide a tenure case or to decide what somebody's merit rate should be or whatever. They should give a lot of credit for people who. Who, in fact, try to write for a broader audience, who try to reach more people—people people who are doing, frankly, Carla, what you're doing—I um, think that that's really extremely important. It's important for for the world, but it's important for our field, for our field of history and philosophy of science as well. And we should be giving credit for that, and we should be training our graduate students and undergraduate students to get engaged. It's just, it's just the way that we need to move forward. Well, thank you, and thank you also for your contributions to that. I think this is, as I've mentioned, a model for what history, history and philosophy of science can be um, to a wider conversation. Great, thanks so much. So, Jane, now that this is done, my final question for you: uh, Now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book. What's next for you? What are you、um, working on now, and what's currently inspiring you? It's kind of funny. I figured, okay, today I'm going to finish the other two articles that I have about embryos, which I think I will finish them today, actually. And then it's on to cells, because because there's an awful lot about cell biology that we don't understand. And so,、um, with a colleague at University of Chicago, Carl Matlin, and my colleague Manfred Lobachler, we have a symposium coming up at the Marine Biological Laboratory、um, in October on on looking at At the understanding of cells today, and we're bringing together top cell biologists, but we're framing that in terms of where are we today compared to where we were in 1924 when Edmund Cowdery put together a volume that he edited that brought together all the top biologists of the day to say where are we are in cell biology. So we're we're going to do something that's looking at where are we today, where are we going in the future, in the context of this 1924 effort that was trying to do the same thing. So the history and the cells and the biology and the MBL and all of that coming together as the next big project. Well, fantastic! Best of luck on that, and thank you again for making the time. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations on a fantastic book. Sure, thanks so much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.